You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Um, our text today, let me breathe a little bit. It's going to be Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing on our series in the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, please open it with us. Uh, we're going to be spending some time, some time in chap- the chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And that's where we're going to be today. Um, last week, we uh, went through verses 1 through 6, and... Um, the topic remains the same. So this is one section, 1 through 16, and I decided to divide it in two, and last week we talked about the first, the first section of, of this text. Uh, the first section um, talked about the unity of the church. Paul encourages the church to live accordingly to the calling, which is the gospel that we have been given, and we are encouraged to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And that continues to be the topic for today. We're going to continue to talk about the unity of the church. And as a reminder, remember that Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus, a big city, a metropolitan city, a diverse city. And this is one of the first churches that were founded in the, in, in the first century. And it was a church that was made up of people from different uh, cultures and backgrounds and religions. So there was animosity and division within the church. Um, The cultures back then were even more uh, radically different from each other. And uh, it was was a a difficult time for the church to be united. So Paul talks to the, the church and tells them to be eager to maintain the unity that has already been given to them. Um, last week, we talked about the four things that Paul uh, asked us to do when, when dealing with each other. The first one was humility, and we talked about humility being how we see ourselves and how we see others based on the Word of God. Uh, gentleness, which is how we treat each other. Uh, patience, uh, we talked about how this means that we are not supposed to put a time frame or a timeline for people to, to do certain things, to be patient with each other. And then we talked about, uh, we, we, I called it tolerance, but uh, the actual verse says to bear with one another. And that implies that it's going to be difficult. There's going to be difficulty in unity uh, amongst the diversity of the church. So uh, Paul ends up by saying that all of these things need to be done in love, uh, which is the key ingredient of, ingredient of everything that we're going we're gonna to do. And that's also going to be the case today. So with that, let's go ahead and read our text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And it says, For, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and, to the no and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, its, with which it, it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that, so that it builds itself up in love. All right, so let's take it one piece at a time. The first thing that we see is uh, in chapters, uh, in verses 7 through 10, is uh, something that sounds a little odd Paul quotes uh, Psalm 68, and he utilizes this reference to illustrate Jesus as uh, a warrior that defeats his enemies and takes them captive. So if, we don't have time, but if you read uh, the whole uh, Psalm, Psalm 68 portrays God himself as a warrior, as someone who comes in and, and, and uh, basically punishes and defeats his enemies and then takes captives and then spreads the loot, which was the typical way of doing things back then. And, but Paul applies this uh, to Jesus. In fact, this is interesting because he, Paul, makes the case that the one who ascended in, in Psalm 68 is also the one who descended. So this is important for us because he's, uh, number one, making a statement that God himself or that Jesus himself is God, which, which speaks to the divinity of Jesus. And uh, also uh, making sure that we understand that the victory that Jesus won, the victory that Jesus achieved on the cross for us is something that defeated Satan, sin, and death for us. So... <clears throat> This is a little bit of a strange uh, way of Paul uh, alluding to the Old Testament, but keep in mind that this is a Pharisee. This is someone who had the Old Testament ready to go at any point because he memorized it. That, that's who he was. So he makes these connections that sometimes we're like, what is he saying? Why did he mention that? But basically Paul is saying that the, the reason why Jesus gives us gifts, which is the point of today as well, is because he basically defeated Satan. And in, in, in him defeating Satan, he has now given us all these gifts to everybody. Jesus, because of his uh, victory over Satan, gives his church gifts, gifts for us to give to each other. But in reality, even though this shows that Jesus has given us all gifts, which is exactly what the text says, this is true not only for the Christian, the one that has been benefited by the, uh, the victory of Jesus. This is true of everyone. So today, the text is saying us as Christians, if you're a believer, God has given you a gift for the edification of his church. But th this is not exclusive to the church. 
Everyone who has been born, who, who carries the image of Jesus or the image of God in uh, himself or herself, has already gifts. God has given gifts to everyone. So in one sense, this could be exclusive to the Christian, but in another sense, this could also be uh, uh, inclusive to all uh, people in the earth. So the first thing that Paul says is, Jesus has given us gifts, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he has given us, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave, gave gifts to men. So the first thing we need to understand is that we all have something to bring. We all have something to give to each other. And then Paul has a very specific uh, set of gifts that he wants to talk about. And that's what I want to focus a little bit of our time today. He goes on in verse 10 to say, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably already heard this talked a little bit about for a long time. I just want to say from the get-go, we're not going to spend a lot of time on like each one of them. I just want to give a, a, a brief overview. But I want us to see something. Let me just go ahead and tell you the brief mention of the gifts. Number one, this is not an extensive list. There's several places in the scripture where Paul and other authors tell us that God has given us gifts. So this is not all the gifts that there are. There's a lot of debate about what these gifts actually mean, how they function today in the church, who can actually have these gifts. Some people call them ministries. Other people call them uh, offices. But in reality, we see right now a short list of four different offices. We're going to call them offices today. Um, and the reason why I say four, even though there's five mentioned, is because the last two, pastor or shepherd and teacher, are uh, the same person. So there is no, uh, in the original language, there is no pastor and shepherd. I mean, uh, pastor and teacher, it's actually a pastor teacher or a shepherd teacher. So we have four different ministries, offices, gifts, uh, however you want to call them. And there's debate about whether they are active today in the church. So for instance, there's one view, uh, uh, and this is a very reductionist way of talking about it. There's one view that says that the first two are no longer active in church. So apostles and prophets uh, no longer exist in the church. They are what is called extraordinary gifts, and they were foundational gifts. They were foundational for the church, and they were also foundational for Israel in the Old Testament. So if we, in this view, if we talk about apostles, Apostles were uh, people who were sent by Jesus, specifically uh, verbally or had even contact with Jesus. So the apostle was someone who actually either lived during the time of Jesus and was sent by Jesus, or in the case of Paul, someone that Jesus himself showed up and commissioned to go and do his work. So that is one of the ways that people see what an apostle is. It's a sent one. It's someone who has been sent, but has been sent directly by Jesus. So not in the sense that we think today. 
So I could say that God sent me as a pastor, but that doesn't qualify me for, uh, to, to be an apostle just because I say that God sent me or Jesus sent me. No, this has to be directly related to Jesus. So this is one way of looking at an apostle. So if that is the correct view, then those are no longer alive. Those have gone. So apostles were foundational to the church. In fact, if you remember, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul actually says that the church has been built on the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets. So people use this to say apostles are no longer active. That was something that happened in the first century. That was what Jesus, the 12 that Jesus chose. And then uh, Judas killed himself. And then Matthias uh, was selected to... Uh, to um, I was going to say replace. That's the word I was looking for. I was going to say supply. I don't know why. Uh, um, replace Judas. And then Paul was added later. And he calls himself an apostle uh, later on. So those are not, no longer active. That is one way of seeing things. The second, um, the second office is the prophet. And the prophet was mostly active in the Old Testament, even though we do have precedent for the New Testament uh, to have prophets. And uh, these were the people that God sent himself to either call out the sin of his people, uh, to predict certain events, or to just give uh, specific messages to his people. And um, some people believe that that's also something that is no longer active. That is what a prophet was. It was also a foundational uh, office that is no longer active. That is basically uh, one of the views. The, both views basically agree on the second two, what a, what, a, what a pastor and an evangelist are, but they d differ on apostles and prophets. So, for instance, the second view uh, which is the more charismatic view, believes that the apostle office and the prophet office are both active. And they believe that apostles are people that basically work or have a ministry similar, similar to the one of Paul, meaning a pastor of pastors, meaning someone who goes and starts, uh, starts churches and then handing, hands them to other people. That is what, uh, for instance, a lot of the charismatic and Pentecostal people believe. It's like there are apostles. Now, there are uh, people who take it too far and they believe that they are like, like another level of authority and, and all these things. And there's, if you YouTube, uh, if you go to YouTube and put apostle something, you'll see some crazy stuff. And people are carrying apostles on their shoulders as if they're kings and things like that. So um, I, I'm not a fan of this position, but that is definitely a position that some people hold. There are people who have a more moderate way of seeing apostles, uh, which uh, I would probably be open to here. Uh, but my personal view is that apostles are no longer active in the, in the way that at least Paul refers to here. Prophets, for instance, that's another way uh, people think that they are still active in the church, and we have people who will call themselves prophets, and they stand up, and, and they come to the front, and they give words, and some, sometimes they try to predict uh, or foretell things. Um, that is also something that I'm not very uh, a fan of. I've seen a lot of abuse uh, happen on this, but um, I believe that God can do anything. Uh, I sympathize more with the first view rather with that, than with the second view, but I'm not close 
to the second option, uh, I just have not seen it enact or being enacted in a healthy way. Uh, but those are basically the two, uh, the two views. The, then the second one, uh, the, sec the last two, uh, there's really not a lot of uh, debate about that. Everybody believes that the evangelist and the pastor teacher are still active today. And for us, um, that is important. We believe uh, that evangelists are no, not just one office. It could be an office, but it could be everybody. Everybody is somebody who is called to take the gospel to other places. And then uh, pastors and shepherds are exclusive to a small group of men within the church that lead the church, care for the church. So those are some of the difficulties and positions. Very, very brief on, on these offices or gifts. Um, but there's another debate, and, and this is the one I want to focus on a little bit more. Some people say that these gifts are just an overview of some of the gifts that God gives to his entire church, meaning everybody could be sort of a little bit of an apostle, everybody could be a little bit of a prophet, everybody could be a little bit of an evangelist, and everybody has some sort of shepherding and teaching uh, responsibilities. That's one of the ways some people see this. Uh, the other option is that these offices mostly refer to the leadership of the church. Apostles, teachers, pastors uh, are mostly uh, a reference to the leadership of the church. I lean towards the second option. I believe that all the offices uh, carry a level of authority given by God. And I believe that what Paul is doing here is that he is appealing to the leadership of the church, to contribute to the unity of the church. If you remember the first uh, six verses, Paul talks about how we should relate to each other as brothers and sisters. And he calls us to be humble and gentle and patient and tolerant. And then in this next part, I believe Paul is including the leadership of the church, which apostles and prophets were active back then, to be a part of the unity of the church, to also be eager in maintaining the unity of the church. And then he not only makes a call to the leaders to contribute, but actually says that the reason why you've been giving this office, this, this ministry or this gift or talent is precisely for the contribution or the blessing of the church so that we can attain unity. That is entirely what Paul is talking about. How can we all pitch in with our gifts and talents, and Paul is making an emphasis on leadership here, to attain unity in our church through our gifts and talents. The point is not necessarily what the gifts are, or who can be an apostle, or who can be a pastor, or if a female can, there, there's female prophetesses, or, or if there's female pastors. That's not necessarily the point here. We have other texts that talk about this. The point here is that all the gifts that God has given to us, whether you are a lay person or a, a member or if you're a leader, all the gifts are not for ourselves. All these gifts have a purpose. So I want to make sure that you know that even though I believe that this is mostly talking to leaders, this will apply to all of us. So if you're a leader or you're not, but if you have a gift or a talent or a position in church, 
this sermon is for all of us. Paul has a very specific purpose in mind when he talks about this, and he lays it out in verse 12 for us. He says that all these gifts, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, the teacher, have one purpose, and the purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And the point that I want to make today is that our gifts and talents are not for our own glory. They have a specific purpose. And the purpose of this is to equip us all, to build us all as a church, to do the ministry, to serve Jesus together. The gifts that we have, the talents that God has given to you, whether they are spiritual or they are physical, or, be, or if you were given a specific supernatural gift, or if you're just a good mathematician or something like that, whatever your gift is, is not just for you or for me. It's for the building up of the body. And this also applies to the larger community. Our gifts and talents as human beings are not just for ourselves. We all play a part in our church, and we all play a part in our communities. That is how God created humanity. We are all interdependent to each other. The point of what God gave you is not for you to become the richest and best person in the world. The, what God has given all of us is for the blessing of others. And this is mostly expressed and should be mostly expressed in the church. And specifically today... The word, in my opinion, needs to be uh, challenging towards leaders because we have made the leadership position in the Christian world too much. And I believe that as pastors, as teachers, as leaders in the church, our job is not to serve ourselves through the church is not to utilize the church as a platform. It's actually the opposite, is we are servants. We are here to serve the people. We are here not to be followed, but to help people. And I feel like, I, I think that the church in the West has taken the CEO mentality, the corporate mentality, and, making, and has made leadership about one person. And the reality is that we mostly know about pastors and not necessarily the church. So I want to make sure that we understand if you are a servant in this church, it's not about you. It's about the church. It's about the body. We are here to equip, to edify, to bless others. And this is something that I, I believe that was well exemplified by, by Clint. He was somebody that I never heard talk about himself. Maybe in ministerial settings, but when I interacted with him, most of the times he was talking about what somebody else was doing, what other churches was, were doing, initiatives that were started, not about his person. And that's something that I think needs to happen more. And then in, this, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the community of the church, I believe that we need to be people who are constantly thinking, 
about others. In the first analogy that Paul uses in Psalm 68, he says that Jesus not only ascended and Jesus not only took captives and that he was victorious, he doesn't only say that, he says that he also descended and that he descended to the lowered parts of the earth. And people sometimes make this to, be, to, to think that Jesus went all the way down to hell and there's debates about that. But what I think really Paul is saying is that Jesus was a model of leadership because he was not only exalted, but he himself voluntarily came down to earth and not just to regular earth. He was crucified and beaten down and then he was put in a hole in the ground. He was buried. He went even lower than just regular earth. He went to the lower parts of the earth. And I believe that this is what we need to do as Christians. We need to lay our privilege down, our gifts and recognition down, and give it for the sake of others. The gifts and the talents that we have are not just for us. They are, they are for our community. And ultimately, they are for God's glory. We were not created for our glory. We were created for God's glory. Remember that Paul is writing to a diverse community. And I am imagining how this played out in a diverse community. And we have to look at it objectively and think, what did Romans bring to the table when they sat next to a Jew? What did a Jew bring to the table when they sat next to a Greek? A Greek? What did Asians brought to the table when they sat next to a Roman? And all of these different com combinations were important and were needed. But in that day, people were looking at each other as enemies instead of rather, instead of actually understanding and appreciating each other's blessings and gifts and talents. And I believe that this is what we need to do here. We need to understand that the diversity that we see, the diversity that we see in the church is not just people. It's also the things that people bring into. Every person sitting in here right now and the ones that are not here, it's not just a person. It's a set of gifts and talents that God has provided for us as a gift to be built up. I firmly believe that every church is made up with specific people that God plays there for a specific purpose. And I don't believe that our church or any church is just a group of people that needs to line up with the vision of one person. I believe that all of us need to evaluate who we are what is it that we bring to the table? What is the makeup of our church? And then follow the only vision that the church has, which is to go and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. How are we going to accomplish that? It's not based on Chewy. It's not going to be based on our, on, on our elders. It's going to be based on you. If you go to a town where most people are carpenters, and the makeup of the church are mostly carpenters, maybe there's something to that, right? You cannot place a guy who's into tech and the pastor is all about technology and his entire church is just people who work as carpenters. 
And then he says that everybody is going to follow him because God told him that they need to use technology to, to do what? That is a typical model that we think of. What is the pastor's vision? What is it that God is going to tell the pastor for all, for all of us to do? But what Paul is saying is, is, is all the gifts that we have as a body, including the ones of the, of the pastor, they're all for the edification of a church. We all need to be equipping each other for the benefit of the church so that we can do our ministry. If you are sitting here, if you call New City Fellowship your church, we need your gifts. Whatever gift you have, God has given it to you today in this year for this church. And guess what? You also need someone else's gift. You also need our gifts. And people usually excuse themselves from giving their gifts to the church because they say, well, I'm not a charismatic leader. Well, I don't preach. Well, I don't play, I don't know, I don't play in any instruments. And we have created a certain kind of Christian culture that values only certain kinds of ministries or gifts or talents. And not only that, we have actually also made it into this thing of like, well, only the outgoing type A, high achieving people can be pastors or can be anything. And what Paul is saying is, no, we all are needed here. All our gifts and talents, whether you're a prophet or you're a pastor or you're a teacher or you're an evangelist or whatever you are, you are needed in this church. I know this sounds like a joke, but it blesses me that every Sunday we have pastries. I mean, I don't know if Mandy needs to be named something official. <laughs> but it's, some, I, it's just the coziness and the family feel of that small gift that maybe people thought like, how am I going to serve? All I do is cook. Or I don't know. We need you. We need your gifts. And especially during this time in our church, we need all of us. We need each other. There's an Argentinian Presbyterian theologian, and his name is Alberto Fernandez Roldan. And he says about this, he says, it is, the, it is in the employment of the gifts that the multifaceted wisdom and grace of God find its expression. Only the recognition of the rich diversity of gifts in every Christian and in all the members of the body will make it possible to carry out an integral mission in service to the world. If we're going to serve our community, we need each other's gifts. And whatever I said about you being in this church right now and adding your, your gifts to us, to this church right now, applies to the larger community. If you live in Manassas today, God has a purpose for that. You are not here by accident. There's something that you need to do here that God appointed for you to do. And God 
placed you here because you bring something here. And then what Paul says next is actually a little mind-blowing. Because in the, next, in the next verses, verses 13 to 16, Paul makes the argument that the equipping of the body is for us to attain the stature of Jesus Christ, to, to grow up, to mature, to manhood. And then he equates that to unity. He equates that with unity. It says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The same topic that he was talking about, he opened up this text or this, this, this section by saying that he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were, we were called, which is the gospel. And then he says, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says again that the gifts that he has given to us are for us to attain unity again. There's an insistence on unity. But what, what it's impressive is that Paul is now not only calling us to be united, he is saying that being united, living in unity, attaining unity is Christian maturity. That's what he says. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And this was very interesting because I struggled to understand why is Paul talking about kids and, and, and then like manhood? But then I realized something. An image came to my mind. And what Paul is doing is basically saying we need to stop being kids that try to grow up by focusing on the wrong things. Let me give you an example. This is the image that I had in my mind when I was reading this text. And it's my son, Joel. He's right here, and I have his permission to talk about this. So he is actually a child who's getting to the, to the, to the place where he wants to stop being a child. He's 11. And he's entering into the preteen years. And, and he's actually trying to become a real man. This is what Paul talks about, mature manhood. He's not talking about us becoming a man. No, he's just using an example. And if you notice, he's comparing it to a, to a child. And this is what happens. My son right now is very interested in growing up, in becoming a real man. There's, there are elements in his life that says, I want to be a, a, a man. He wants to be an adult. He wants to go to bed later. He was just celebrating the fact that now he's size 8 in men's shoes, which sucks for me because now all the shoes are really expensive. Um, <laughs> And then he's always measuring up to his, to his mom, and he's already taller than his grandma. And he, like, he's celebrating all this really, like he's looking at his muscles, and he thinks he can beat up any guy on the street. And, and so he's, he's looking at the things that he thinks are being a man. But it's a childish way of thinking that that is what a man is. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, we are like kids Tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, and we're easily conned, and we're easily deceit. 
Because we're looking at, we're thinking that being a mature church is about the things that it is not about. Just like growing up and being a man is not about being tall and tough and having muscles, being a mature church is not about our doctrine and it's not about how we set up the chairs and the cool music that we play. That is exactly what Paul is saying. It's about unity. It's about understanding who we are, understanding who the person next to us is, and serving each other. That's maturity. And Paul is saying, until we attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, being like Christ, being to the stature of Christ, is actually uniting It's actually appreciating each other. It's actually uh, working for the benefit of others. Because this is exactly what Jesus did. This is exactly what the most mature man in the whole world did. He came to die for others. That is Christian maturity. Christian maturity is about us bringing ourselves into a community and giving ourselves to others for the benefit of others. If we're not doing that, then we're just like children. We're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine because we keep thinking, and this is not only only my son, Joel, this is myself as well. When I read this, I remembered when I was a young Christian. And back then, I thought that being a mature Christian was being in a band and recording and traveling with your band and being famous for Jesus and preaching to all this Big, uh, p- big crowds. That's what I thought was being mature for Christ. And then I became a pastor and I studied theology. And then I thought that being a mature man was all about the fine points of doctrine. And I was arguing with everyone. And I made sure I quoted the right theologians. And I was just going about all these little things like a little child thinking that that was maturity. I was measuring up towards other people, making sure that I was buffer and tougher and taller theologically, ministerially, with other guys. And Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying through, uh, 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 Jesus is saying through Paul, this is not maturity. This is actually immaturity. The more I actually mature, the more I realize how dumb I was. And I've said this to my wife so many times and other people. It's like I look back five years ago, and I'm like, man, I was just so dumb. And then I look back 10, and I was like, oh, my, I don't even want to talk about that. (laughs) And then I look 15, and I'm just like, let me just shut up. And every five years, I look back, and I just realize, like, so, so my conclusion is, like, I know I'm pretty dumb right now. I just haven't realized it. And I will realize it in five more years. The more I mature, the more, real, the more I realize how insignificant those things are. That's what I love about getting older, is that you, start, you stop caring about things that literally make no sense. And that's what Paul is saying. Church, if you want to be a mature church, we need to start actually caring about the things that are actually important. You know what those things are? People. 
us. Church is not about being cool or large or having cool programs or the equipment that we have or a rocking band or... No, that is not what church is about. Church is about people. Church is about loving each other, being gentle with each other, being patient with each other. That's what church is about, bringing your gifts to the church so that you can bless each other. Look at how Paul writes to Titus, a young student, a young pastor, a young, uh, yeah, someone that was appointed to, to lead a church. In Titus 3, verses 8 through 3, he says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good, to good works. So Paul is saying, that I want you to focus on doing good works. And then he says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. And then look at, look at what Paul says to Titus. But avoid foolish controvers- controversies. Controversies or controversies? You guys need to add uh, accents to your language. <laughs> they help a lot. But avoid foolish uh, controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. About the law. How does this sound to people? Like, stop arguing about the law. (gasps) The law? It's the law. It's the law. Like, this is what we're supposed to argue about. Right? But Paul is saying, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. This is a Pharisee talking about the law. Go on social media and post this verse and say, let's stop arguing about doctrine. You know how many people are going to jump on you? Doctrine? Really? This is, this is what it is all about. And then he says, as, a, as, a, as of a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. These are some of the worst or harsher words that Paul has for people. And you know what the problem is? Division. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Those are the words from Paul to people who cause division in the church. Unity is maturity. Unity in love is maturity. That is what Paul is saying. Our gifts, our talents are for others, are for the church, are for our community, are to to build each other up. And then Paul ends by giving us another, one more time, another example of what the church looks like when they work together. And he gives the example of one body. This is not the first time that Paul does this. He did it in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, and then 13. He talks about the different kinds of gifts. There are other gifts. And then he says, we're all one body. We're all part of one body. And Paul says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. When we work properly, the body grows. That's what we need to do. 
We need to equip each other. We need to love each other. That's exactly what Paul says. But then Paul finishes by saying, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The key ingredient of everything that Paul is talking about is love. And that's exactly the point of Paul in also 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, in fact, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians that if you speak in tongues, that if you see angels, that you ha- you're, but you have no love, no love, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if you have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge and you know all the doctrine, then you have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but you have no love, you are nothing. This is what Paul says. This is exactly what Paul is saying. And then he says, if I give all that I have away and I deliver up my body to be burned, but you have no love, you gain nothing. Just think about this. There's people who can give their their bodies to be burned. There's people who have enough faith to move mountains. There's people who have all the knowledge and the prophetic powers to understand all the mysteries of God, but they have no love. And Paul is saying they're nothing. Again, the point is, it does not matter how you look on the outside. You can come to Sunday every, you can come to church every Sunday, you can tithe, you can host a community group, you can be a pastor, you can be a leader, you can look perfectly, but if you have no love, it's all fake. We can be Mars Hill or Hillsong or any cool church and have the names and the thousands, but if we have no love, it's all fake. And time is going to reveal it. It's all going to crumble. That is not the church. Whatever we think the church is in America is not the church. It might be a great institution. It might be a great thing that we do. But that's not the church. The church is a group of people who love each other, help each other, build each other, and preach that message of love to the outside. That is what a church is. People who appreciate the diversity. People who look differently. People who are patient with each other and tolerate each other. That's what the church is. The church is a group of people that grow in love. That should be our priority. But the reality is that the Western church is all about speaking in tongues having the knowledge, understanding the, mini- the, the mysteries, f- having faith. There's very little emphasis on loving for real, having a genuine interest in other people. Alberto Fernandez continues to say, it is love that makes it possible to accept brothers and sisters in the church as different and necessary. If we have no love, we're not going to accept people. Love prevents the growth of hierarchies which accord special importance to one ministry over against another. There is no essential difference between various gifts and their functions. The widow doing works of mercy is working as charismatically as the bishop. All people are necessary to one another and must help in the growth of the body of Christ. And in the words of Jesus in John 13, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. There's no mention of the the size of the church. There's no mention of the strategy of the church. 
There is no mention of when the church meets or where it meets. There's no mention of any of those things. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. A mature church is a church that lives in unity. And not just any unity, but unity in love. And through the gospel, through the fact that Jesus died on our place and paid for our sins and has already forgiven us for not being able to do that, he now gives us the ability, the grace to live like that. So I want to finish by calling us all as a church. I know that we're all here thinking what's going to happen, how is this going to happen. Our church is in a weird transition. We're sort of like teenagers that are finding our voice and things are changing and we don't know if we're children or a mature church. Let's focus on loving each other and loving the people outside and preaching the gospel. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your love and thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for being so good to us. Lord, I pray that today you would move us to thank you for your gifts, to thank you for the talents that you have provided to us and help us understand that they're not for us. They are for your church. They are for other people. In our church and in our community. Lord, I pray that whatever we do as a church, I pray that whatever steps we take as a church, that they would be done, made in love. I pray that you will help us not be a, a noisy symbol, but rather be people who love each other, appreciate each other, and work for the benefit of others within our four walls of our church and to the larger community here in Manassas. Help us mature, God. Help us attain unity. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.